Liz Ricaro, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Liz Ricaro is uh, a legal consultant with the Antiquities Coalition. The Antiquities Coalition, which Liz will describe in a minute, is an advocacy group. And uh, you were kind enough to spend some time with me today. What we want to talk about mainly is the recent FATF report that came out on the 27th of February on money laundering and terrorist financing in the art and antiquities market, a very comprehensive report, which we want to talk a bit about. But first, uh, Liz, obviously a number of our folks in the anti-money laundering community are aware of the Antiquities Coalition and all the great work you do. But for those that are not, give us a snapshot of what the coalition is, what's the mission, and some of the issues that you folks cover. Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me today, John. Uh, the Antiquities Coalition is a nonprofit that's leading the international campaign against cultural racketeering, which is the illicit trade in ancient art and artifacts. We champion better law and policy and foster diplomatic cooperation and advance proven solutions with public and private partners worldwide. So we are always working towards a future when the past is preserved for the next generation, not being looted or smuggled or sold to finance crime and conflict and terror. And in this work, we have done some work in the space of the financial crimes, um, anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing field, um, particularly with our report um, on the art market and financial crimes produced by the Antiquities Coalition's Financial Crimes Task Force. Yeah, and that and that report is available on your website. So, so what you're talking about is is a global problem, obviously. And I have to think that some of the major challenges have to do with the various laws and regulations in different jurisdictions, some that ex exist and some that need to be improved. Just again, uh, high level, w where are the biggest challenges um, jurisdictionally. So what, let, let's look at it this way. What's the Euro European Union like, U.S., and any other jurisdiction you want to mention? I know, obviously, there's so, so many regions out there, and obviously, cultural artifacts run the gamut. But just in general, from an Antiquities Coalition perspective, wh where are the areas where it's been... Um, let's just say successful to, to a degree, and we know that much more needs to be done, and areas where you definitely see you need improvement. Now, the FATF report will mention some of that, so we'll talk a bit about that in a bit. But just from your, from your perspective and all the time that you've worked with the coalition. Yeah, absolutely. So just to cover vocab really quickly here, um, the FATF report refers to the trade and art and antiquities and other cultural objects as the trade and cultural objects. I myself tend to go an even lazier route and call everything the art market, but um, I do want to emphasize here that we are not just talking about works of art like paintings, we are talking about antiquities, archaeological objects, and so on um, when we're talking about this market. Um, so it's quite a broad space. Um, and the art market is a really rapidly growing global trade with fairly weak regulations. Um, as you mentioned, the United States is kind of leading here um, because it remains the world's largest art market. The most recent estimate was that it accounts for 43% of the global total in 2021. Um, this is of course speaking about the legal trade um, for which we actually can gather this information on. Um, 
2021, the aggregate sales of art and antiquities by dealers and auction houses reached an estimated $65.1 billion. That was up 29% from 2020. Um, and that also surpassed the pre-pandemic levels of 2019. So this is extremely rapid growth and it's coupled with weak regulation, which has made the art market increasingly attractive to criminals who are adept at exploiting the legal and regulatory regimes for their own financial gain. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to mention that as you were touching on the um, international nature of this and the various jurisdictions and their different laws are part of the problem right now. The EU and the United Kingdom, which are other leading markets in this space, have regulations in place um, that address it the potential for anti for money laundering and terrorist financing in the art and antiquities market. And the EU and UK's laws are very much in line with one another. However, the US does not have comparable um, regulations in place, making the US a default place for criminals to look because they are not going to be scrutinized, their transactions will not be scrutinized in the way that they are overseas. Right, and through the great work of the coalition, Back in um, uh, early 2021, a uh, law was signed, uh, which we now euphemistically call the AMLA law. And that was uh, a series of changes, eventual changes, some studies, some strategies on anti-money laundering, which included uh, adding the antiquities um, industry, broadly defined, um, except for art, which I'll mention in a second, under the Bank Secrecy Act. And so the success that you folks had in, in shining a light on that did result in a uh, bipartisan support for including antiquities. We do not have a regulation yet because of a whole series of uh, um, requirements and obligations that Treasury's Bureau FinCEN has. They've not gotten around to crafting the antiquities regulation, but I wanted to mention that art, as, as Liz mentioned, was, was also being discussed in the advocacy regarding weak uh, or non-existent laws in the U.S. And what happened was somewhat of a compromise, I guess, that the uh, legislation simply required the Treasury Department to study the art world separate from antiquities to uh, decide which markets should be subject to regulation and whether they should focus on high-value trade and works of art and, and uh, that sort of thing. And so what happened was, as Liz and I know is the study came out a bit ago from Treasury. They concluded that art definitely is an area that gets misused by transnational organized crime, by terrorism and all sorts of other illegal acts. But uh, there is um, it is not yet a priority for the Treasury to issue regulations. So having said that, also should note that FinCEN, again, the Treasury Bureau, did send a notice out to all the financial institutions, as they do from time to time, telling them how to currently, without the laws and regulations changing, report suspicious activity in antiquities or art on suspicious activity reports. So again, that's not to say I'm defending the fact that there's no laws or regs. That's not what I'm saying. It's still, there still are obligations in the U.S. And I think uh, a lot of that success 
in terms of that outreach goes to you folks for really making the case uh, and we'll see what happens with art. So that, that I, I, I think is important, but as, as we mentioned, what we want to spend most of the time on today is getting Liz's take and uh, that of her colleagues on this recent FATF report, money laundering and terrorist financing in the art and antiquities market. It's a 60 page report. It was issued, as I said, on Monday, uh, February 27th. It was an outcome of this month's plenary. FATF does three plenaries a year, and they did a series of things as FATF always does. But um, Liz, from we talked a bit about this offline. Your initial thoughts and after reading it in detail is pretty solid report, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really extensive report that captures the complexities of this market and the global nature of it, which in turn adds other layers of complexities as we try to address these issues and try to prevent them and prevent this market from being abused by criminals. Um, importantly, the report recognizes that the market does attract criminals and terrorists um, and that it's has many inherent risks to it um, that can be mitigated in various degrees. Um, you know, the fact that it is this billion dollar industry, the fact that there is a culture of privacy and discretion, um, the frequency with which cash is used in these transactions, right. the frequency of using third party intermediaries, which makes it quite difficult to identify the ultimate beneficial owners of a transaction or of, um, the object that is being sold, the use of shell companies and complex corporate structures in these transactions, and the fact, of course, that many jurisdictions haven't taken any action at all in this space to regulate it or combat these crimes. Yeah, the, the other part of this that uh, we also chatted about briefly is all the case studies. So definitely um, one, one of uh, one of the things that's so important to AML professionals is you can tell us about laws and regulations and indicators, but give us some examples when there's been prosecutions, when there's been cases, and they do quite a bit of that in this report, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. The case studies included in here are phenomenal. They really did their research because, of course, without the regulations in place, we are not going to be prosecuting people for money laundering through art and antiquities necessarily. They're going to be prosecuted for predicate offenses. Um, oftentimes we see this happening with uh, tax evasion or other illicit crimes like drug smuggling um, or in other cases, sanctions evasion. So there's a number of crimes that are, are um, partnered with the art and antiquities market um, where people are using this market to facilitate other crimes. It is not necessarily, and in many cases it truly is not, I'm not being um, dramatic here when I say a genuine art collector is not the one facilitating these crimes. It is people taking advantage of the lax regulations in place here um, for other means. You know, um... One area that I recall during the the advocacy of Andy adding antiquities and looking at the art market was um, complaints by auction houses that they they do extensive due diligence. Now, there's portions of this report that talks about uh, auction houses that do facilitate transactions, and they say approximately twenty six point three billion worth of an international public sales in twenty twenty one alone. Um, obviously, they, they make profits 
by taking a commission on each sale. So there's a financial incentive that's clear. Um, what's your take in general and what in terms of what the report says, but also the Antiquities Coalition view? I mean, auction houses, I think, have done like a lot of groups. Hey, we have best practices is what we do. But what's, what's your take as, as somebody who's viewed, uh, viewed that part of art and antiquities for, for quite a while? Yeah, absolutely. And um, that is um, a defense that's raised by these larger auction houses. You know, they are operating internationally. They have to comply um, with EU laws, for example, if they are running business in the EU. That being said, all of these best practices that are coming from internal regulations or from um, business groups are best practices. They are not legally binding. Um, so it is up to the auction house to what degree that they engage with this on a transaction by transaction basis. It might behoove them to not follow these best practices in cases where there's a sensitive client. Um, and equally, um, because it's not legally binding, any of that information gathered may not be usable by law enforcement. Um, the other issue here is that because this is coming from a self-regulated standpoint rather than working with financial institutions is that the lack of knowledge sharing about what constitutes a good suspicious activity report about the type of information that should be gathered um, for all transactions versus when a red flag is raised, that kind of thing that a financial institution is incredibly familiar with folks in the art and antiquities space may not know or understand what information should be gathered and how to do so. So the lack of um, compulsion to do this um, is a barrier. The um, other vulnerabilities mentioned in the report besides auction houses were art advisors and online marketplaces. Um, what, what have you seen in those? I mean, they make the case. It's, so folks should read the report where they talk about why those are vulnerabilities. But again, just another part of this, right? Um, I wasn't even sure, frankly, what an art advisor was. I certainly know what online marketplaces are, but what's what's your view of those uh, areas in terms of their vulnerabilities? Certainly the online market space is one of the most vulnerable spaces right now. Um, there's very little regulation in place here. And this is talking about, you know, things from Facebook marketplace all the way to an auction house running um, an online viewing room in association with a completely legitimate art fair, um, attracting, you know, legitimate buyers and sellers. Um, but this space is very poorly regulated. Um, the amount of information that's being gathered about the buyers and sellers in these spaces is almost done, um, if any at all. Um, there's no obligation to gather that information. And with the speediness of the transactions um, that are taking place, it's it's going to slow things down. Um, so it's not an attractive thing to do even for legitimate um, buyers and sellers. And it's incredibly attractive to those who are not legitimate, who are trying to obscure identities of the buyer or seller, obscure the origin of the object. Um, it's a space that um, really is completely shrouded. So that's a space that many jurisdictions really need to turn their attention to. Um, I'm certainly no expert on NFTs, but that's another space that is largely unregulated. And we're seeing um, it over the course of the last year or two, just how much that space is rife with people taking advantage of those that lack of regulation to commit crimes, um, whether it's 
washing a transaction or obscuring you know, the source of funds. Um, there's just a lot of opportunity here for bad actors. You know, you talked about some of the other um, indicators and use of cash obviously is pretty clear, but also something that AML professionals are pretty well aware of, and that's um, in the trade-based area, uses of under or overpricing. So, you know, obviously that's another way to launder funds, right, is to under-report what the art is worth or the antiquity is worth or over-reporting that. I have to think that's something that you folks have identified quite a while ago, that that's, that's an area of concern, a continued concern um, in, in terms of the sale or purchase of uh, cultural artifacts or, or art itself. Certainly, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. This is something that can be done with any object. It's not unique to the art or antiquities space, but it is a very easy way for people to manipulate um, a market. And to that end, it's even less suspicious in a space like the art and antiquities market where evaluation of something can be down to the eye of the beholder. Of course, experts um, you know, have a baseline knowledge and collectors too, um, who are genuine, know the value of certain works, but those can fluctuate wildly, whether the artist is gaining or losing popularity or whether some, something has fallen in and out of fashion um, or if someone's just artificially driving up the price um, either because they're competing with someone and want them to lose out on something that they know a competitor really, really wants. <laughs> Um, or And that, of course, points to why people like the um, anonymity of this market. They want to remain private so that their competitors can't artificially drive prices up in bidding wars. Um, but equally, that can be used to artificially drive up a price so that you can launder your money. Right. So um, one of the areas that um, when I first went to meetings that you folks held, uh, not knowing anything about this space other than obviously the, the theft of cultural artifacts or the destruction of artifacts done by terrorist groups, um, how that all worked. But another part of this uh, report that's interesting is what they call terrorist financing threats that are associated. And, and we know now, and you folks knew for a while, that trafficking and trade of cultural artifacts finances terrorist activity. And that's and that's been used by Al-Qaeda, ISIL, their affiliates. They raise funds through the excavation, looting, and smuggling of these, of these objects. Um, give us a sense of that. It's not So, I, I, you know, when you guys were first created, was the focus more on the destruction of artifacts and how awful that was uh, for legacies in, in countries? Or was it a combination of taking those artifacts and selling them for uh, illicit purposes? Well, you know, you're, you're striking close to my heart here. Um, I'm a trained archeologist, so this is how I entered this space and first became familiar with the financial crimes aspect of things. And I was coming at this from a cultural heritage preservation aspect. Um, and so for us, there is no comparison of between which is the greater evil here. And they do tend to go hand in hand because the value of cultural heritage is either in the notoriety of destroying it, um, in which case that's a massive loss to humanity, um, 
I do believe that cultural heritage belongs to all of us. Um, and so that loss is permanent and deeply sad. Equally, when these objects show up on the market and are being used to raise funds for these terrorist groups or otherwise lost into the black market, that's also losing this cultural heritage. We have lost track of it. We don't necessarily know any of the information that an archeologist may gain if it's been dug up out of the ground um, without the kind of academic right. surrounding structure. Um, and of course, when we lose objects from museums, that too is a loss because it's no longer available to academics or to people who might visit. Um, so it's all it's all equal in my eyes. Um, I'm speaking for myself here, of course. Sure. Um, but this is it is an enormous loss um, in all all respects. And ISIS knew this. They knew that this was a business model. They had a ministry of extraction that governed the extraction of petroleum and the extraction of antiquities. Um, they had various taxes based on who was taking the objects out of the ground. Um, they took a cut of the proceeds. They knew that this was a resource that they could exploit just like petroleum. Yeah, it's it's awful. And um, it's, it's always interesting to me, the background of you folks like yourself that, that worked in this area and also you're also lawyers. It's just, uh, you guys are Renaissance people and I mean that in the best way possible. And I think it's really fabulous what you're doing. Let's spend some time. To, the report goes into what they call good practices. And I think um, some of these you, you guys are already working on, uh, but they talk about in the report, the jurisdictions obviously have to understand why this is so important, like we like we briefly touched on. And they said that some of these jurisdictions have training programs, guidance documents, some have laws, um, and some have codes of ethics, uh, best practices, and then um, you know, various initiatives from governments on raising awareness, all, all of that. Uh, there's a series of good practices listed there. But if somebody were to hire you and bring you in and say, Liz, tell us all about how we, uh, you know, we could be, could be an auction house, we could be art dealer, we could be an institution, how we could improve and be proactive in this. What are some good practices both mentioned in the report and things that you folks have been pushing for several, for several years now? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing to note here is that we need there to be proportionate risk mitigation here what is the best practice in a source country that's rich in archaeological objects that might be getting looted is maybe not going to be a best practice in um, a, a country where there's a large art market lots of buyers but not so much looting right so we want to make sure that the risk assessment that's going on is proportionate to the issue that these organizations or these governments are facing um, I do think in general, just education across the board here, whether we're talking about educating folks on in the art and antiquities market side on what the money laundering risks are within their, their space so that they aren't unwittingly facilitating these things, which, you know, this report highlights that it is often unwitting. Um, and it is a case of people not being aware of the risks inherent in their business. Equally, right. we need law enforcement to be educated. And, you know, that's um, 
so as you mentioned, some jurisdictions are really kind of taking the lead here in developing training programs and information sharing. Um, and there are many platforms already in existence, and particularly for information sharing um, about looted and, looted and stolen antiquities and artworks and that are accessible. And the greater <laughs> number of people that are aware of these resources, the better. Yeah, so Inter Interpol has a stolen work of art database. Uh, the Italian, I'll probably mispronounce, is Carabinieri Unit for the Protection of Cultural Heritage. Um, I think that's when I first went to a meeting, uh, an Italian police officer who ran that came to the meeting, explained what they did. I thought it was fabulous. And then I know you folks have worked closely with the Manhattan DA's office because they've, they've brought some cases as well. So the combination of prosecutions, databases, outreach, as you say, risk assessment, proper risk assessment, and, and just telling people why this is important. You know, I think, you know, some of us would look and say, okay, well, that's something on somebody's mantelpiece. How is that, how is that impactful? But I think, you know, explaining the legacy behind the piece, what it meant uh, to a particular country's history, that sort of thing. I think sometimes th those things get lost. And, and yeah, I, again, you folks have done a great job in, in shining a light on that, which I think is, is uh, so important. So there's a lot there. Let's uh, look, get you out of here on this. The, um, the report finishes by um, listing some risk indicators. So you've already mentioned some, obviously, you know, cash and under, uh, under invoicing, over invoicing, that sort of thing. What are some other uh, risk indicators? Now, some of these I would, I would say clearly just are evidence of money laundering, right? So some of these things could be used as indicators for a lot of things, but um, what are some of them that you saw in the report that are particularly unique that AML professionals should be paying attention to? Hmm. That's a great question. So I think that this market space um, can be intimidating for folks in the AML space because, you know, they're thinking, I don't have an art history degree. How on earth would I know what's unusual right. and what is not, what is a red flag and what is not. And as you said, a lot of the, the red flags um, highlighted in this report, um, I believe they're in Annex A, the risk indicators, are kind of just standard AML risk risk indica indicators it's not something that requires another degree um but particular red flags to this space i think are looking at um you know purchase sales or purchases of items that involve sellers who aren't really concerned in recouping the initial investment um, right mm -hmm. or an unusually high profit margin um use of cash large amounts of cash um or large bank, large denomination banknotes. Um, as I said, cash is a very common um, way for these transactions to be paid for. Um, and that is intentionally abused by bad actors who immediately get to take advantage of being anonymous, right? There's no credit card attached, um, no check, <laughs> checking account attached to the transaction. Right. Um, I think also looking at whether the object is from a source country that is currently or recently experiencing conflict, um, armed conflict, or um, a recent natural disaster. Um, there's a number of kind of red flags here where it's like, well, 
why did this suddenly show up here and why is it on the marketplace when it has been previously, um, you know, has no previous history of being on the market? Um, those types of transactions are a little bit more unique to this space, I believe. Right. Well, Liz Ricard, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your insight. The report is tremendous. The Antiquities Coalition has a number of other things. You guys have done webinars, interviews, white papers, all sorts of things out there that are uh, useful for people that are interested in this space. And I, like, like I said, I, from talking to you, you guys uh, over time, I think we've been able to get the AML community uh, more engaged in, in this issue because of the importance that you've outlined today. So thank you so much for what you do. We really appreciate this. And uh, we'll talk again down the line. Absolutely. Thanks so much, John.